Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Oftentimes people ask me, how do you come up with your questions? Well, usually they have to do with things that I'm thinking about, things that I wonder what people who have more experience and more knowledge than I. And my guest today is someone who had been recommended by Martin Selbretti, Vice President of Calcedon, as someone who could speak on a wide variety of subjects. Well, I've been thinking about citizenship what it means. And, you know, as a Christian, we consider ourselves citizens of heaven. And even Paul the Apostle used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. So I'm not sure today people really understand citizenship, which gets tied in with the entire immigration issue. So the question I'm posing today to my guest, Steve Sampson, is, does citizenship mean anything anymore? So, Steve, thanks for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. Let me just give you a little background. I retired as a professor of government at the Helms School of Government at Liberty University almost four years ago. I continue to uh, pursue my projects. Uh, I do I write uh, quite a few articles. I I've been distilling lectures into articles, articles into columns, and hopefully columns uh, will uh, um, become chapters of books in the future. So as someone who has concentrated his career in terms of teaching, government, policy, things like that, citizenship is very much a political issue because if you're a citizen, it means that you're part of a certain kind of government. Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, citizenship is something uh, very specific, but it is uh, something that uh, I think we are losing an understanding of. So when the Republic was founded there was a certain understanding as to what it meant to be a citizen. Could you share a little bit about that? Well, a citizen of, uh, of a country is uh, someone who uh, has uh, legal uh, rights uh, to uh, vote, to um, uh, speak out in uh, public on uh, public uh, matters of concern. It is uh, uh, someone who is uh, recognized as belonging to uh, the country, and when uh, overseas, uh, uh, one is also protected under the laws of the country. So citizenship has privileges, and as yeah. I've been taught recently to make sure that we don't ever say that government grants rights, that governments recognize rights. So when the Constitution was formulated, it mentioned the word citizen a number of different times. These yeah. particular things had to do with certain people, not everybody in the world. Yes. With the um, Constitution of the United States, there were some arguments over 
citizenship in the United States as opposed to citizenship in individual states. And of course, there were uh, different views uh, that were uh, argued about. Uh, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution following the Civil War uh, was designed in part to recognize uh, the uh, rights of uh, those who had not been seen or regarded as, as citizens previously, but uh, uh, who were uh, native-born on American soil, and uh, uh, many of whom had been in bondage. So explain the difference, because some people might not even see it as a particular distinction. What's the difference, for example, being a citizen of Ohio as opposed to or and being a citizen of the United States? Well, the one is included under the other. So an Ohio citizen is also a citizen of the United States, Ohio being part of the United States. But the United States is also a federal uh, system. And while there were arguments uh, from the beginning over uh, how much latitude uh, individual states had in uh, determining who was a citizen of the state. They certainly could uh, set requirements for voting, and those uh, voting requirements uh, often differed. Uh, it was New York, Virginia, and Massachusetts that were among the earliest to uh, drop uh, uh, property qualifications uh, uh, for the right to vote. So the right to, uh, to vote uh, is an aspect of uh, citizenship. So you could be a citizen and still not have the uh, right to vote within the state, which is an interesting concept to uh, people today who are unaware of uh, the distinctions that were made. Many people today, especially those who understand the biblical nature or the unbiblical nature, I should say, of government taxing land and property, that the power to tax basically says or designates some degree of ownership. And so uh, quite possibly yeah. the distinction about a property owner voting as opposed to someone who was not had something to do with stability and the interests not only of the present, but for the future as well. Yes. Now, it was in England uh, that there was a saying that a man's home is his castle. Uh, that was a part of uh, the common law tradition. Unfortunately, it's not clear that that was carried over uh, in the thinking of uh, early Americans. Uh, again, uh, this is a fundamental issue that needs to be explored. I don't uh, have a clear-cut answer, but I do uh, approve of the concept, uh, and I believe that uh, it is biblical in its uh, foundation. And of course, the question, and that's not the focus of what we're talking about today, but if you didn't have property taxation, if you didn't have a central banking system that sort of promoted inflation, more people would be able to own land because they would keep more of what they made. So 
since we didn't have an income tax and we didn't, I believe, have a property tax at the outset, what we're looking at today is very different than the context of when the Constitution was ratified. Yes. What has uh, changed uh, since, especially since the Civil War, but even before the Civil War, with the uh, change of property qualifications uh, for uh, voting, what has uh, changed is the rise of an administrative state that you might say is superimposed upon the original Constitution. And so we had early amendments, but uh, following the Civil War, uh, some of the amendments that uh, have followed uh, did have a tendency to concentrate uh, uh, power at the center so that a federal system became increasingly a national system also. It's not that the federal aspect disappeared altogether, but one great uh, scholar of the Constitution, Edward Corwin, in the early part of the 20th century and mid-century, wrote about the effect of total war on the Constitution. And he distinguished between a constitution of rights, which we began with, and a constitution of powers, I believe he called it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's known that after a war, government the state consolidates effort, consolidates its power, you might say. Yes. To talk a little bit about the idea that the federal government was a federation of states. So you remained a citizen of your state. And I've had people point out that in the document itself, citizen with a capital C appears as does in the 14th Amendment and subsequently citizen with a lowercase c. Is there some differentiation between the choice of a capital or not a capital letter? Well, without uh, pondering that, I will uh, beg off a a clear-cut answer. It is worth exploring, though. Uh, Certainly after the Civil War in the 1880s, an assistant attorney general of the United States in the Cleveland administration wrote a little book entitled Poison Drops in the Federal Senate, in which he contended that the uh, original Webster's Dictionary and the Webster Dictionary of 1828 uh, uh, was designed to reflect the understanding of uh, political language Uh, that prevailed at the time of the founding of the country. And so Noah Webster, as an early patriot, uh, wanted as an educator to uh, preserve uh, uh, the thought of the founding generation. And uh, this was his great legacy, which was continued by his son-in-law. I actually have a copy of uh, the Webster's Dictionary that his uh, son-in-law, Chauncey Goodrich, is a recall, uh, edited, and I sometimes uh, consult that uh, dictionary. But what happened, and this was a charge uh, lodged by Zachariah Montgomery, is that following the Civil War, the school, so-called Webster's Dictionaries, 
began uh, changing the uh, definitions to reflect a more nationalistic view. Once again, you see how education is important and the definition of words. Um, back then, the definition under contention was what it meant to be a citizen. Now, unfortunately, what it means to be a man or a woman is under attack. So I don't think anybody yeah. should ever underestimate the importance of grammar and definitions. Correct. So what's the net effect of loyalty in terms of citizenship? Um, I doubt today many people would consider themselves more loyal to their state government than they would to the federal government. From your perspective, if we were going to remedy some of the social ills that we see, is one more preferable than the other? Well, the progressives of a century ago thought that uh, it was easier to change the laws at the national level than to try to do so uh, at the state level, since there were so many states. And so uh, the language that many of them used, uh, in fact, uh, treated the states as if they were very parochial, and it's the national government that represents the uh, best interests of the people. And uh, some of them uh, used language like uh, uh, the Constitution is a product of a horse and buggy uh, mentality and age, while they wanted uh, uh, something that was uh, more up-to-date. Many of them favored a parliamentary uh, sort of system. In any case, uh, uh, they brought over ideas, particularly uh, developed uh, in uh, Germany, educational ideas that uh, uh, came to, uh, uh, you might say, infiltrate the educational system. Graduate schools uh, were started following uh, the German model. Johns Hopkins University was the first of these. I have done a lot of research on Francis Lieber, who was an interesting uh, figure who came over from Germany uh, uh, as part of an early uh, migration of uh, German scholars. He was someone who was very critical of Hegel, but he did uh, move to Massachusetts. Uh, he was part of the uh, literary uh, uh, circles uh, there for many years. But he is also someone who had developed a real uh, appreciation uh, for what he called Anglican liberty, to which he added American liberty in contrast with what he called Gallican liberty, a French uh, administrative centralized uh, uh, tradition uh, that uh, is more akin to what the progressives were seeking. So they sought to uh, centralize uh, power in order to uh, bring about uh, uh, the political reforms they sought rather than go through uh, uh, the regular mechanism. We see that today with every president decides if he can't get legislation the way he wants it, he signs executive orders. And so- oh, yes. From a child's point of view, the way America currently operates, it looks like, well, my house, my rules. So 
if it's kind of mm-hmm. a scary thought to me, Steve, actually, that you can have somebody who will be diametrically opposed to what the last administration does. And then that same person mm-hmm. has control of the military. It looks like it's a game of tug and tug of war rather than actually governing so that people could have liberty. Yes. This is something that I write uh, about quite a bit. I lectured for many years uh, and, and I became increasingly concerned about uh, how the direction of our country and I wanted to understand. And so I've, I spent a career digging into uh, uh, a forgotten literature, sometimes uh, a literature that had been drop, deliberately dropped down the memory hole. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've collected a lot of things over the years, and I continue to wrestle uh, with the issues that they uh, uh, raise. But I do appreciate going back to uh, 19th and 18th uh, century uh, uh, literature that uh, presents a very different uh, picture of uh, the founding of our country and the uh, purposes behind it. I do uh, appreciate some scholars, uh, uh, many scholars who specialize uh, in a certain area bring perspectives uh, uh, that are largely forgotten by others. Forrest McDonald is uh, someone uh, uh, whose uh, work on the American Constitution I read and actually uh, used in class uh, starting in the 1980s. So would you say it's a stretch to say that the American Constitution, as it was written, presupposed a biblical morality? I wouldn't say that uh, it's a stretch at all, because uh, even though there were Unitarians uh, among uh, the uh, framers of the Constitution. Neither Jefferson nor Adams was present at the uh, Constitutional Convention. Both of them uh, uh, were, in fact, uh, serving as ambassadors uh, overseas. But they were in intimate uh, uh, correspondence uh, with uh, uh, many of those uh, who were there. Uh, but by and large, uh, it was professing Christians who uh, uh, were part of uh, uh, the original Continental Congress that uh, drafted the uh, Declaration of Independence and then later uh, the Constitutional Convention. And uh, Mel Bradford, Emmy Bradford, uh, in fact, uh, wrote a, a book uh, that... Uh, uh, looked at the uh, Christian heritage of, uh, of those members of uh, uh, those uh, founding bodies. More recently, uh, Daniel Dreisbach and uh, Mark David Hall have uh, made contributions to that literature also. I have uh, books going back uh, to the 1920s, uh, that uh, cite a literature that developed uh, during the whole colonial period uh, uh, that drew upon uh, the uh, biblical covenant tradition. 
and more recent scholars uh, have uh, written uh, on that uh, very well. Uh, also, I would uh, mention Daniel Elazar as one. Uh, let's see, another is Ellis Sandos, uh, who collected political sermons of the founding era. There's just a rich literature available to uh, anyone uh, who uh, cares to dig into it. And I think scholarship has gone the way of something that most people don't think it's their responsibility to do. Um, I think they rely on what some people call the fourth branch of government, the media, although I think you could call the bureaucracy the fourth branch of government as well. But uh, at the outset, when somebody was designated a citizen, did they have to be born here to be considered a citizen or if they had not been born here but at the time of ratification then they would have been included as citizens could you just explain that a little bit well i i can't explain that in any great detail without uh, digging into it uh, uh, into the specifics but there was a process of naturalization and uh, we did have uh, Uh, Some political figures uh, like Alexander Hamilton, who were not born within uh, uh, the existing colonies that became the uh, uh, new American states uh, following independence. Uh, And he was a very powerful influence and advocate uh, for certain views uh, early in our history. Yes, he was a citizen probably under the uh, qualifications uh, of uh, the Constitution specifically, he would have been unable to uh, uh, become president. But there are, uh, again, some, you know, differences of opinion. And we have uh, uh, some people that are born to American citizens or to one member of the family who's an American citizen abroad, and questions have been raised about uh, uh, whether uh, John McCain or Ted Cruz or others who have uh, aspired to the presidency uh, uh, actually met the uh, constitutional qualifications. Naturalization, in any case, uh, has been a part of the process from the beginning, as I understand it. Was it always a practice if somebody was born here that they automatically became a citizen? Well, yes and no. My understanding is uh, when you reach majority, if you were born here, as the late king of Thailand was, you either... If you're not living in the United States, uh, uh, when you reach majority, you have to uh, uh, determine whether uh, you're going to declare citizenship or not. In the case of the King of Thailand, of course, he couldn't be the King of Thailand and a citizen of the United States at the same time. So does the United States not allow dual citizenship that you, if you're going to be a citizen of the United States, that's the only citizen you can be? Well, dual citizenship is allowed. I don't know how common it is, and I'm not sure when dual citizenship uh, started becoming uh, an issue. Again, it is something uh, worth exploring. There are uh, people who uh, do hold 
uh, dual citizenship uh, with other countries. My understanding is, uh, in my case, I could go to uh, uh, the Swedish embassy in uh, Washington, D.C., and apply for uh, Swedish citizenship on the strength of my grandfather being a native-born citizen. I see. So this this is something more recent. It's a, a new wrinkle that uh, I was unaware of, uh, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago. When I began teaching, uh, I'm not even sure I was aware uh, of uh, dual citizenship as something uh, that was even possible, let alone a reality. And I know that with the advent of passports being required, originally, the Republic didn't require passports to go in and out of the country. Do you think mm -hmm. that as this has developed, showing your ID, having a passport, that the concept of citizenship has taken on a new color? Uh, perhaps that's the case. I do carry my passport with me uh, whenever I travel, even within uh, the uh, 50 states. And I do a lot of travel. Uh, I was recently in Mexico, and then a couple of weeks later, I was in Texas. And it's a lot easier at, at the uh, airport uh, simply to uh, uh, show your passport. I see. So let's talk about the idea, uh, and I, this is in one of the articles that I read that you had written, that increasingly the question you pose is, are we becoming more subjects than we are citizens? Why don't you explain that distinction? Okay. When you uh, raised this uh, issue uh, a couple of days ago, I was in the midst of uh, writing an article, and uh, uh, perhaps my um, article got modified in the process, but I hit on a new title just this morning as I was thinking about it, Surrendering Our Birthright. And that certainly sums up uh, that question very well. Uh, I guess it's a question of whether we're choosing uh, to be Esau or Jacob. Citizenship is uh, something that is very important to uh, newly minted uh, citizens uh, from other countries uh, that uh, lived under uh, rather oppressive uh, conditions who did not enjoy the uh, historic freedoms that um, the American people uh, have. Uh, East Europeans, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, have a clear idea of what they have left behind and what they uh, like to enjoy as citizens of the United States. But the question is uh, how many Americans uh, who have been educated in public schools have not been taught much history? You know, is there a price of a historical negligence, such as we have uh, uh, seen in uh, generations of education? I taught more than 40 years at the uh, college level, and I certainly noticed uh, changes in uh, perspective and perception uh, by students over the years. And these often reflected some of the uh, political changes that were taking place uh, in uh, national politics. 
So during the Reagan years, uh, students um, seemed to uh, reflect um, more of a conservative uh, view represented by uh, the president. But uh, when I was began teaching in the 1970s, uh, it was, you know, the uh, country was uh, drifting very much to the left. And one of the things that I can say from my own family background, my grandparents, both sets, were born in Italy. Both came, both mm. sets came, met here in this country, so they weren't already married. And it was of utmost importance that their children were Americans. Um, one set of grandparents yeah. even changed how they pronounced their names to sound it a little bit more American. And yet we have a whole wave of people today who come to the country and only criticize as opposed to recognize, okay, not perfection, but that they don't want to join it, so there's not a sense of belonging with becoming a citizen. Yes, and I've uh, seen this uh, uh, in students as well as others that I have encountered along the way. I recall uh, the story of a uh, geographer from Sweden who came over in the first decade of the 20th century and uh, told Swedish-American audiences, you are now American. Uh, so he was opposed to uh, hyphenated Americanism. I think Francis Lieber, uh, the uh, uh, German uh, scholar who uh, came over and founded the first American encyclopedia. He uh, ran the first uh, gymnasium in Boston. Uh, he uh, was quite a well-accomplished uh, scholar who held the first chair of political science in this uh, country. But he may have coined the term hyphenated Americanism, uh, which he opposed. Mm -hmm. So he often addressed uh, uh, German-Americans. Uh, uh, in those uh, terms, and was uh, very much in favor of preserving the Union, even in the days uh, when he taught at uh, what is now the University of South Carolina. I read a book recently that spoke in terms of that America is unique in as much as if I went to go live someplace else, let's say I decided I was going to go live in France, no one would ever yes. call me French. I'd still be an American who is living in France. Mm -hmm. However, in our country, when people become naturalized citizens, they're considered Americans. Yes. It's an interesting phenomenon. It is, and I believe it is um, unique. I'm not sure that there is another country that... Uh, was premised on this idea of assimilation, and yet uh, the requirement of uh, assimilation has uh, fallen by the wayside so that uh, uh, people can become uh, citizens without learning the language, without identifying uh, with uh, the culture or the uh, values uh, that were instilled into uh, the system at the beginning, uh, America is uh, treated as an experiment that uh, just is uh, continually overturning and 
churning along, changing everything, and uh, which seems to suit uh, the uh, uh, notions that uh, some people uh, have. They would prefer something fluid that they can direct uh, and channel in uh, you know, ways uh, favorable to their interests. Right. I think of uh, the Fabian Society uh, motto, uh, there is a stained glass window that George Bernard Shaw helped to design, which had as a motto, uh, mold it to the heart's desire. And there's a picture of Shaw and uh, Sidney Webb hammering away at a globe on top of an anvil. So they were reshaping the world according to the heart's desire. And in some states, and I live in one of them, in the state schools, oftentimes you will have classes that are not in English because the children can't yes. necessarily understand it. And I remember meeting a high school civics teacher who taught only mm -hmm. in Spanish. He didn't have a real fondness for the United States Constitution. And he pointed out to me, thinking I would agree with him, which I didn't, but he thought mm -hmm. I did that he could teach these students whatever he wanted to teach them about the Constitution because the administration didn't speak Spanish. Yes, I have seen how closed uh, some immigrant communities become and how particularly older members of the community uh, uh, do not learn the, the language. This is to some degree understandable. Mm -hmm. The learning of a new language becomes more difficult the older you are, and I I do well to master my own language. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I took Spanish, I took German, but I made sure that my children developed an ear for language. And so I, my youngest child, well, all of them are linguists uh, uh, to a degree that I can't imagine. Well, yes. I told you about my, my grandparents. I know my paternal grandmother. I don't think she ever really spoke English, but she would make a point of finding somebody in the building or the neighborhood who was good at English, and she would ex exchange loaves of bread for them tutoring her children. Mm -hmm. And my father, yeah. one of her seven of her children, ended up being a medical doctor. And that's how interested they were in making sure that their children would assimilate. Uh, so there was no idea yeah. that they were Italian right. before they were Americans. They were very proud to be Americans. Yes, and I think that was common uh, among immigrants uh, uh, throughout the 19th and in, into the early 20th century. Correct. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, things have begun to change, and I think much of it has to do with, let's say, illegal forms of immigration. And also a system that tells people that you don't have to work when you get here, that now taxpayers mm -hmm. are being taxed in order to fund it. So it almost looks like this is a way to change the fabric of the nation by bringing people in who you don't intend to actually embrace the founding principles of the United States of America. Yes, it uh, certainly appears that way. And someone who was a member of uh, the British cabinet uh, in the late 1990s, 
revealed in his memoirs uh, afterwards uh, that something like that was uh, happening in England. So I have it quoted somewhere, so I don't recall who specifically uh, said that, but it was a heads up uh, to uh, think about that. And then I ran across a little poem by a very loyal communist from East Germany, a literary figure, Bertolt Brecht, who uh, wrote uh, something like that in dismay over the crackdown by the East German uh, government on uh, the uh, protest by public uh, service uh, workers in uh, 1953. And this poem was found after his death, it entitled in English, uh, The Solution, by, you know, someone, as I mentioned, uh, was a communist. He lived in East Germany. He was a literary figure, but but there was an uprising of workers and uh, he was dismayed at uh, the reaction of the government. And yet this is what we face uh, in this country today. He wrote very simply, after the uprising of the 17th June, the secretary of the Writers Union had leaflets distributed in the Stalin Alley stating that the people had forfeited the confidence of the government and could win it back only by redoubled efforts. And then he adds uh, with bitter irony, would it not be easier in that case for the government to dissolve the people and elect another? Wow. It's a little bit (laughs) close to home. Oh, yes, yes. So I do have a question that is a grammar question. So you talked in terms of A lot of people today have not been schooled appropriately on the foundation of America. And I would say the same thing is true biblically. We have lots of illiterate and ill-informed Christians. And so I've I've been in debates with people. Is it proper to designate ourselves as Christian Americans or American Mm -hmm. Christians? Obviously, one's the adjective and one's the noun. But... You, you know, you brought yeah. up Jacob and Esau and, you know, Esau having sold his birthright. So from your perspective, and I realize this is a personal opinion, what do you mm-hmm. think is the proper designation for believers who live in this country? Well, we are American Christians. Christian America uh, seems to carry a, a hint of uh, a political agenda of some sort. And so I'm not comfortable uh, with that designation, but we are Americans and Christians. Certainly our American uh, background does to some degree uh, channel our understanding of the faith. Sometimes uh, that is a problem. Are you hopeful that... That depends on uh, the will of the people in the end. And uh, whether uh, we can recover a sense of our priorities, this this will require some real leadership, I would say. And uh, that leadership needs to come from uh, the churches, from the uh, larger Christian community in this country, because where else is it going to come from? 
I have appreciated uh, the efforts of Vishal Mangawadi, for instance, to use uh, the uh, church as a vehicle for offering uh, higher education with uh, pastors uh, acting as resources for making sure that members of the congregations have access to the best thinking by Christians in terms of various fields, academic fields. And I think that's a brilliant idea. And what I appreciate about Vishal is how how he doesn't have to start big. He's willing to start small. And yet you see things snowballing because people have realized Mm -hmm. the time to have an educated Christian populace is now if we want to preserve the founding principles. Yes. So it it takes that kind of uh, leadership. Somebody has to get the ball rolling. And as someone uh, from India who uh, came to appreciate the uh, role of missionaries uh, in India and how they help create modern India, India is not in spite of efforts to turn it into a Hindu state. At its uh, birth, it was uh, Christians that uh, presided over preserving the earlier languages. It was Christians who uh, were influential in uh, ending uh, uh, certain practices like uh, sati and something uh, uh, that uh, had spread uh, even uh, uh, down into uh, areas uh, that include today's uh, Indonesia, for instance. And so uh, our Western civilization, um, you might say, is to a great degree a project of the church going back at least a thousand years ago. And so it's a civilization uh, that even though it it may not, you know, it may draw on uh, other traditions and other foundations, but it came together, I would say, as a project of uh, uh, Christians who were missionaries and other Christians uh, who led the church, uh, uh, who uh, played a major role also. And so there, this is something I uh, began writing about when I did research on church state issues and wrote a doctoral dissertation that I entitled Crossed Swords. And it's really about a um, dynamic, a a dynamism uh, built into Western civilization that uh, reflects the dynamism of the Christian faith. You mentioned earlier, as as we were discussing it, that you think it's probably pretty unique in terms of governments, the idea of assimilation. And yet that's Mm -hmm. really what the basis of Christianity is. When Jesus departed the earth and said, disciple the nations and bring them into a relationship with me, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what your background is, that membership in the body of Christ, membership in the Christian race is an Mm -hmm. assimilation into the principles and the person of Jesus Christ. So in a lot of ways, you can see that coming out of the Western thrusts, and then the founding of America, I would say that there, that there is that kind of presuppositional thinking. Yes. 
And uh, I will contrast that now with the poem, The Solution. And I would say that is part of the what I call the strategy of subversion that's been at work and that I have uh, witnessed. I was a student at the University of Colorado in the late 1960s. I saw all of uh, what was going on at campus uh, uh, at that time. I was a, uh, a student of Edward Rozek, uh, who was persecuted severely by the administration, by radical leaders among the students. In the 1980s, he was uh, even, even had charges uh, brought against him and a uh, district attorney's uh, office investigation. And so uh, there were uh, powers that uh, were determined to uh, silence him. And so the cancel culture is nothing new to me. Uh, the cancel culture is uh, something I've had to uh, deal with all of my career from my student days onward. And so you might say, these are the things that I write about. I write about the roots and foundations of our system of government and uh, culture, but I also write about the forces that uh, threaten it because, you know, we human beings uh, are fragile. Anything that is built on the fragile foundations of uh, human beings is uh, intrinsically at risk. And so I, I use words like pre precarious to uh, uh, talk about the state of the West today, because a, a precarious property is one where the title isn't clearly held, or at least uh, is disputed. And of course, uh, the uh, title of the United States to some of its property has been uh, disputed by uh, neighbors in the past, uh, by activists at the present. Well, our time's just about up. Steve, thanks for joining me and kind of bringing a lot You're of welcome. these issues to the forefront. If people wanted to read more of your articles and find out more about the things that you think are important to focus on, how would they do that? Well, I have a number of things out uh, under my full name. You can simply Google my full name is Stephen Allen Samson, and find a great abundance of things uh, because just about everything is out there on the web. I do write on a regular basis for uh, town hall finance, even though I don't write about finance. I uh, write for the Market for Ideas in Bucharest. It's an English language publication. Uh, that's quite remarkable. I've gotten some of my friends to contribute to that. I write for the Western Australian Jurist. I've enjoyed uh, being able to uh, both travel and have my words uh, travel as well to uh, other places. And I'm, I'm hoping in the process I can gain a true, truly world view of the issues uh, that we must face together. Agreed. Very important. And one thing I think that maybe we'll close on this, I'm somebody who had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Dr. Rush Juni, who founded the Calcedon Foundation. 
And I remember thinking, wow, it's here's a scholar. And you count as a scholar. Do you think becoming a scholar is a worthwhile activity for some of our youth today in, in preparation for wanting to make the contributions that are important to them and maybe look at that from a point of view of it's important to delve into the past and then analyze it for people so that they can have a better understanding. Yes, I, I would like uh, uh, people to uh, catch catch the vision, you might say. Uh, Dr. Rush Dooney was a remarkable scholar, and I've had the privilege of knowing not only him, uh, but people he knew and respected. And so I've, I've known some very brilliant people in my life, and uh, uh, I believe iron sharpens iron. Uh, if we interact uh, uh, with people who have uh, real ideas worth wrestling with and experiences that we may not share, but uh, uh, experiences that they can draw upon, there is so much to learn. The New Testament refers to uh, deeds of uh, Jesus could fill, what, entire libraries. And I would say uh, that his shaping of our lives uh, for the last 2,000 years is a, uh, a story that we can learn from. Arthur Holmes wrote a book uh, called All Truth is God's Truth. And we need to, rather than be parochial in our treatment of people's contributions, come to recognize them under the aspect of eternity. Amen to that. Steve, thanks for taking the time with me today. You're most welcome. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode. And if you would like to communicate about this or any other topic you would like to see us cover or someone we might interview, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.